1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Aaliyah. Hey, good morning, everybody. Yeah, welcome to Park Hill. My name's Evan. Uh, my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church with an amazing team. And we... Let's get right into it. We're walking through 1 Corinthians this year. Um, And I just want to say now what I said in the last gathering. This specific teaching, I feel extremely insufficient to preach. Um, Yeah, I'll I'll just, I'll start with that. This, This teaching has been heavy for me in preparation. Um, it's all about Christ and him crucified, and I feel like every word that comes out of my mouth is hypocrisy <laughs> as I unpack the glory of Jesus, giving himself completely for me. Um, so, last week we started in verse 10. And this looming problem in Paul's mind is division. So the church is divided, they're fighting, uh, they're disagreeing, and it's tearing the church apart. And remember, the Jesus followers in this city were getting sucked into sophist culture, which was like celebrity culture and um, all about personal influence and eloquence and followers and entertainment and secular ideology. And this was creeping into the church, okay? And they were starting to follow whoever was the most impressive person in the church, which is why Paul finished last week's section with this statement. He says in verse 17, for Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he's holding up the gospel and saying, this is not a human innovation. Uh, And it launches Paul into this 18-verse section where he contrasts what he calls the wisdom of the world against the wisdom of God. And, And Paul's saying the story of Jesus is the ultimate alternative story. And it conflicts and confronts all opposing stories. And so to make his point, Paul points to this huge gap between God's wisdom and what he calls world's wisdom. This huge gap is so huge that what Paul says is from human perspective, God's wisdom looks like nonsense, foolishness, from human perspective. Um, And he does this in three sections. Uh, God's nonsense, the cross, the church, and preaching. And those are the three of the next Sunday. So today we're doing the cross, okay? Um, This is our roadmap, and Paul's doing, here's what God values, and here's what secular culture values. 
Here's how God thinks. Here's how competing stories think. And so to highlight this stark contrast, Paul holds up exhibit A, which is the cross, which is a mountain of meaning. And I feel completely incompetent uh, to unpack it. All we can do is just encircle it and ask for the illumination of the Spirit. Um, because I think we're supposed to, I think maybe in some weird backwards paradoxical way, we're supposed to encounter our insufficiency when we look at the cross directly. Uh, and I've, I've been feeling it this week. So um, let's get right into verse 18. Because Paul cuts to the chase and he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, he says. Okay, this is Paul calling out the elephant in the room. Imagine for a second, let's do a little exercise. You're a Greek 2,000 years ago or a Roman and you like Caesar and you like sophists, you like eloquent speakers and you like the classics or whatever. You're a smart person and you're hearing this message about some Jewish peasant named Jesus in the eastern armpit of the Roman Empire, and this from a despised race, a Jew, and he was executed on a trash heap somewhere, and now you're hearing this message, that Jew was God, and he's not only alive again, but he's the reigning king over your Caesar, your president, and every other ruler, and this Jewish king is ushering in his kingdom through this ragtag community called the church, and you're invited to join, come eat his flesh, drink his blood, and, and, and worship his great name because he's physically returning one day to judge you and everyone and, and put an end to every sad thing. Complete nonsense. Um, foolishness. The Greek word is moria, where we get moronic. Literally an oxymoron. Christ, king, crucified, shamed. Uh, and Paul, so Paul finishes this outlandish statement like this. Here's the rest of the statement. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So this nonsensical message of a crucified risen king is, is nonsense by human standards, but, quote, to us who are being saved, it is, it is the power source for our salvation and transformation. Um, Notice, Paul says we're being saved, not like for those of us that have arrived or for those of us that will one day figure it out. He's saying there's a process for us who are being saved. We're imperfect and in process. A few weeks ago, we talked about this. I love that James K.A. Smith quote I brought up a couple weeks ago. Uh, conversion, coming to Jesus. Conversion is not an arrival at our final destination. It's the acquisition of a compass. I love that picture. And when we pledge allegiance to the crucified and risen king, Jesus, we're saved, we're forgiven, we're cleansed, you're given a new status as loved son, loved daughter that nothing can take away from you, and we, as his family, are also being transformed. Following Jesus is this lifelong journey of becoming like Jesus together, becoming like the forgiven family of Jesus he sees us becoming. Um, and so Paul's point here is, to us who are being saved, this message, this story of the cross is God's power source. We need to keep coming back to it, you guys, because our spiritual vitality depends on us consistently returning to this story of the cross over and over as a church. Um, my friend Pete Hughes, he's a pastor in London, he has this great line, the story you live in is the story you live out. 
And I think that's true. Humans are storied creatures. We're, we're all, we love seeing ourselves as part of an epic. We love seeing ourselves in an Avengers movie or whatever, or a great novel. We put ourselves into it, and we feel the feelings of victory vicariously. And, and we're made that way. We're very unique amongst creatures in that way. And, and the story you live in is a story that ends up coming out of you. Uh, and so to step into the story of God in the scriptures is to step into a story that clim- it, it hinges on the, the, the shaming of our God. So stepping into a story where the one you worship was the most shamed of all humans, what does that mean for you and me to, to live that out? Um, so the cross is the key to understanding not only God's story, but how you and I fit into it. So Paul says the story of the cross is foolishness to those who don't follow Jesus, to those who are clinging to the things that are perishing, but to us who are humble and in process, to us who humble ourselves, um, it actually becomes a power source to live in the world as God's spirit-filled family. And Paul's logic comes from the prophet Isaiah. So he's brilliant here. Paul grounds his thinking in a hundred-year-old before him prophecy from Isaiah 29. It's in verse 19 there, if you have your uh, 1 Corinthians open. And he says this, For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I'll frustrate. And okay, right away we have to disclaimer, Paul, don't misunderstand Paul. He's not an anti-intellectual. He's not against going to school and getting a PhD and, you know, being educated. Paul's one of the most famous intellectuals in human history. One of the most educated people um, in human history. This is actually part of the irony of this section of scripture. Well-known Greek scholar N.T. Wright, he points out that Paul, in this specific passage, he's using such complicated, intelligent Greek rhetoric and grammar that we can only assume Paul is using irony here to make his point that the cross confuses the intelligent. He's brilliant what he's doing here. And, And the way Paul quotes the Old Testament here is beyond brilliant, okay? That phrase that we just, can you put up that phrase again, um, the last slide, that I will destroy the wisdom and intelligence, that's a quote um, from a passage in Isaiah where Yahweh is describing how he will come and save his people once and for all. And in that passage, God is saying it will be so unexpected and so shocking, it'll be such a paradox that the arrogant will totally miss it. It's baked into it, this safety against the arrogant. And, and, it, and only the humble will be able to receive it. Receive it. It's crazy. And so here's a quote from the same prophecy in Isaiah 29 on the, on the screen. It says, in that day, the day that Yahweh acts to save, the deaf will hear the words. And out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see If you know you're deaf, you know you need to hear and you will. If you know you're blind, you know you'll need to see and you will. Verse 19, once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. On the other hand, verse 20, the ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear. And all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. So Isaiah is describing the shocking, unexpected way Yahweh 
is going to step in and save his people and how the arrogant, secular mind will miss it. And the humble, those who know their need, those who admit their need for healing, will be healed. And they'll rejoice and be saved. This is Paul. He's brilliant here. He's pointing back to this ancient prophecy where God's like, one day I will act. And Paul pulls it forward into his day. And he says, that act was the cross. Ultimately was this this oxymoronic paradox where God became the the off-scouring. It's ultimately the cross of Jesus, the story of a crucified king. It's still the craziest story you can imagine. You can't make this stuff up, which is like a huge part of why I believe it. No one would make this stuff up in their right mind. It wouldn't work. Um, It's this story that saves the humble. And and, and it says, for those who are perishing, um, for those who are perishing, this story of God willingly dying on a cross, forgiving his enemies, including us, that story completely confronts our delusions of self-sufficiency. And Paul's saying it's that self, self-sufficiency, that godless posture, that's what God will frustrate. That's what the cross frustrates. And yeah, like the cross, you know, it confronts the obvious stuff like atheism um, or like paganism, pluralism. It, the cross frustrates that stuff. But I think way more close to home for us, the cross also confronts our selfish approach to like everyday life, like way closer to home. Just take two examples, our money and our influence. We like to call it influence stewardship or whatever, (laughs) stewarding my influence. Like take money, making money is awesome. But as a follower of a crucified king, does the cross give shape to how I spend my money at all? Or, or influence, the, cr- the cross, um, influence is great, influence is important, part of leading, uh, but as a follower of a crucified king, does the cross give shape to how I use my power with other people? So this is a moment to really take inventory of our loyalties, me included, Uh, Are we truly looking to the cross to be empowered and shaped to live like Jesus, or are we just riffing off secular values of culture in how we actually are living? Um, Paul says the cross will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligent of the intelligence, it'll frustrate. So uh, he goes on in verse 20, he says, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher, philosopher of this age? He's talking to the celebrities and the, the ones who have most status and most respect in the godless culture. He's like, where are they? And then he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the wise? Okay, this is where Paul, he's calling out this thing called the wisdom of the world. He calls it out, the wisdom of the world. And he says, the logic of the cross You know, like Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The curtain gets pulled, and you see the Wizard of Oz for who he is. The cross pulls the curtain on secular wisdom. So right away we need to pause here. Pause. So he's talking about wisdom of the world. How many of you grew up in church, and you heard the phrase, the world, like used super negatively? Like, watch out for the world, or whatever. Um... Like, oh, that's bad and worldly over there, and like, beware of the world. 
So if you have a church, ba- if you don't have a church background, if you're not used to Christians, that's like a really weird thing to hear. Like you mean where you mean the where I live, like the world, <laughs> like the planet. Um, so so we need to unpack this for a second. Let's unpack it. In the scriptures, the term the world is used both positively and negatively. Uh, and here in 1 Corinthians, this is the negative sense. In this passage, the world refers to secular culture and ideology that's opposed to the kingdom of God. And, and there are other passages in the New Testament where the world is used positively. Like John 3.16, like God so loved the world. Like, he, like God loves humanity so deeply and he loves culture, and he loves expressions of art and beauty. God loves that, and we should too. So this has to be clarified today for two reasons. Reason number one, and I'm speaking generally here, so just you know, bear with me. Previous generations of Western Christians, especially in America, um, previous generations of Christians overemphasized this negative sense of the world. And this is the culture I grew up saturated in. Uh, The term the world was sort of this junk drawer, negative term for like the earth. And the idea was the world, earth is bad, it's all going to burn, and we need to stay away from as much non-Christian culture and no good music and stop dancing because we shouldn't love the world. Don't love the world. And then just fuel that with all kinds of weird end-of-the-world type left-behind theology, and it became like let's remove ourselves from the world and hunker down in our Christian subculture until Jesus comes and cleans house. Don't love the world. Um, and, and in 1 John 2.15 was read beyond its meaning, I think, where it says, do not love the world. There it is. So, right? I mean, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And it was often forgotten that that same author, John, also used that same word for world in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So, like, come on, which is it, John? Like, do not or does God, and he just do as I say, not as I do? What's going on? It's the, exact, it's the exact word for world here. And here's the result. The result is in, in their passion, previous generations, in their passion for holiness. The previous generations of Christians tended to lose sight of that positive vision of the world in Scripture. And now, listen, to their credit, to their credit, Those past generations were zealous for the presence of God and passionately preached the cross for salvation of the lost and eagerly anticipated the return of Christ. Like any day could be the day. And they're living in light of his return. You guys, that's amazing. That is something our generation sorely lacks. Which brings us to reason number two why this needs to be clarified. Generally speaking, on the other end, younger Christians, and I imagine this concern applies to most in the room, We have the opposite problem. In our reaction against some of the overzealous legalism and separatism and wild end-of-the-world stuff of the previous generation, in our reaction, we're now overreacting and the pendulum's swinging and overemphasizing this passive, positive view of the world and ignoring the negative sense in the scriptures. Like, we love the stuff in the Bible about creation care, and environmental stewardship and creating culture and beauty and being in culture and all of that, and which is great and super important. But then we come to the verse, do not love the world or the things of the world, and we don't even know what to do with it. 
Like, we don't even know what it really means. We're like, don't love the world, okay? I'm a Christian, cool, got it. And then we turn around and spend the weekend pushing against as much traditional morality as we possibly can in the name of freedom. And now it's like, well, I wouldn't say I was drunk last Friday night, or, or I wouldn't say that was technically sex that we had or whatever. And we often don't have a working category for a worldliness that is actually opposed to the kingdom. We don't even have that category. This generation, me included, of Christians needs to rediscover a biblical vision for this. We need to read the rest of 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which is like for everything in the world, here's, here's, what, here's the negative sense, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. You guys, we don't even have that category anymore. And I get it, this city, San Diego, amazing. Like, I love that, you know, that's, that phrase, America's finest city, it's stuck, and rightly so. It's an amazing place to live. Uh, in this current moment, in this, it's beautiful. So much about our culture is amazing, and it is to be enjoyed. Absolutely enjoyed in partnership with the Spirit of God. But as followers of Jesus, we don't just believe the world needs to be enjoyed. We also believe the world needs to be redeemed. That's the balance. As Jesus followers, we're called by God, the creator, to partner with him in redeeming this world that he loves. And we say that all the time around here, partnering with God to redeem the world. But the question is, do you actually believe this world needs redeeming? Or are we just living on spiritual autopilot? Like, I know I just sort of love Jesus and people and try to have fun and do my best and not feel guilty about stuff. Like, do you actually believe you are called away from the things of the world, quote? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, so that you can live out the story of the cross with power that transforms you and the world around you for the kingdom? Or do you just love the world? Is your ambiguously positive view and passive acceptance of the world blinding you to God's worldwide redemption plan, including your part in it? And then you wonder why you feel storyless and directionless and untethered to any sort of divine vision. God wants to empower you for his purpose in the world, to fill you with vision, to partner with him in bringing heaven to earth and redeeming this world that he loves. But do you believe the world needs to be redeemed? Or are you just a passive participant? The call today is to agree with God's definition of wisdom. <laughs> a mocked, shamed, laughed at, and brutally rejected king who invites us to take up the same cross. Do you agree with that wisdom? And not look to secular culture, but look to the cross as the ultimate expression of God's love and direction for your life. This is what Paul is getting at in the next verse, verse 21. And this is kind of a weird uh, sentence structure, but just kind of stick with it. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So in other words, God cannot be fully known by human ingenuity. 
In other words, we can't climb up the mountain and find him. We cannot know God apart from him choosing to reveal himself to us. We are incapable of fully knowing him apart from his own choice to reveal himself to us. And guess what? This should humble us. This should awaken us to our need. This should awaken us to his rescue plan to reach us. And God knows this. God knows that this should humble us. So God chooses to reveal himself to humans through this nonsense, (laughs) through this shocking nonsense of a crucified peasant Jewish rabbi that was reaching civilized Rome. Have you ever stopped to realize if it wasn't for Christmas, incarnation, God becoming a human, if it wasn't for that, humanity would have very little idea of what God was like. You know, the greatest revelations of God to us, the greatest way he's made himself known, it's not the Bible, even though that is a great way, and he has made himself known there. The two greatest revelations to God, uh, of God to us, is, is Jesus and his cross. And wrapped up in his cross was his act of resurrection. Apart from Jesus, the idea of God, it wouldn't be much more than a theory somewhere out there, anyone's best guess. But in Jesus, God steps into our mess and lives with us. And he fully makes himself known and he gets to experience our sin and the effects of our sin and our suffering and brokenness and pain. And God, through Jesus, speaks in a language we understand. God intimately pursues us who are far from him because of our rebellion. And God shows us what he's like because of Jesus. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Jesus shows us how God feels and thinks. Jesus brings God near. And to use, to use Paul's language, this is what we preach. We preach a God who made himself known to humans through the life of a poor Jewish peasant rabbi who healed the sick, befriended the outcast, and was innocently nailed to a Roman cross, raised from the dead three days later, and he now reigns over heaven and earth and empowers his church to live out his cross-shaped life until he himself returns. This is what we preach. This is the story. Hey, everyone in this room, I don't know if you're a Christian or if you're not or if you have been for a long time, invitation is the same. This is the story we get to live into today. From wherever you are on the map, it does not matter. We get to reorient ourselves, and the cross is like the fixed point on your GPS, and then hit enter, and then, and then start following that route from wherever you are. This is what it means to be a disciple. And, and this is the story we get to live into. It'll look different for everyone, but it's the same fixed point. And, and, and we get to live into the story, and then when we live into it, we find that by the power of God, there is a new kind of life that we live out into the world that actually changes things. One of the major points of 1 Corinthians, this whole letter, what we're going to see is what Paul's doing is he's taking the cross like a, like a, like a, like a pair of glasses, and he's putting them over everyone's eyes, and he's saying, this cross, this lens, is now the new way we're going to look at every area of life. Who is Jesus on the cross, and what's going on on the cross? Look through that lens at your business, 
and at your singleness and at your marriedness and at your, you name it. How does the cross color your vision? That's the color of reality that he's calling us all to step into. Money, influence, relationships, business, sex, education, uh, scientific exploration, every area is to be viewed through the lens of a crucified God. This is what we preach. And Paul finishes this section uh, like this. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, ultimate oxymoron, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul talks about two groups, Jews and Greeks, that are ticked off at this cross message. Why are the Jews bummed out? Well, because for Jews, they are so offended by this story First of all, their, their scriptures, Deuteronomy says, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. So they're like, well, it can't be Jesus because he hung on a tree. And also the Jews were expecting a Messiah who would conquer Rome, not be crucified by Rome. They weren't expecting the exact like, table-turning, upside-down, flip-flopped way of Jesus' victory. We're not expecting that at all. And in the Gospels, the Jews kept asking for signs. Oh, Jesus, you multiplied bread, now do it again. Uh, now, now do another sign. Hey, we demand another sign. And, and, and Jesus says, a wicked and crooked generation keeps asking for miracles instead of humbling themselves. And, and so Jesus actually says, you're going to see my resurrection. That's the only miracle you actually need, and that won't do anything for you, which makes any other sign powerless to help you. And then Paul talks about the Greeks. To the Greeks... I've said it already, it was, this was a nonsense story. I mean, just imagine, we, we live where crosses are everywhere. They're on, you know, historic landmarks in near La Jolla, Mount Soledad, they're hung around our necks. But imagine hanging a little gold electric chair around your neck, and you're, you're getting closer to how this message would hit people around you. Um, for example, here's a picture of graffiti from 100 years after Paul. It's really hard to see, so I'm going to show you the, the line art of it. So, so 100 years after Paul, someone, this is the first artwork that represents Jesus that we have, by the way. A, a naked man with a donkey head and a man named Alexamenos raising his hand in worship. And the caption, the 1900-year-old caption, believe it or not, says, Alexa Menos worships his God. This was public shaming graffiti. It's on display in Rome, in the museum near the Colosseum. And it is very intense. And it's worth looking at for hours. We've lost the strangeness. We've lost the offense of the cross. The story of the crucified king was an oxymoron, like a peaceful terrorist or an honorable serial killer. 
One commentator said it's like literally fried ice. Like we worship fried ice. I would say we worship decaf coffee. It's an oxymoron. Shameful. (laughs) Why would I? I'm a brilliant, classy Greek. Everybody knows that the dude was a donkey because he got crucified, which is the ultimate public shaming. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, two billion members strong confessing that that crucified God is Lord of the world. And we're the body of Christ. We're empowered by the spirit of this crucified king to live his cross-shaped life in a nonsensical, self-sacrificial way. And we still preach it. We still preach this shocking news. The gospel is all about God dying on a trash heap at the wrong end of the Roman Empire. The gospel is all about God babbling nonsense to a room full of the best and brightest. N.T. Wright says it this way. It's all about the true God confronting the world of posturing and power and prestige and overthrowing it in order to set up his own kingdom a kingdom in which the weak and foolish find themselves just as welcome as the strong and the wise, if not more so. This is what Paul, this is why he would later write to Romans, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. Coming back to this story, you guys, we live in this story because we get power to live it out. It's actually a wellspring of energy, divine heavenly energy is to rally around the bread and the cup and the scriptures and the gospel every week and every community gathering we have. The cross is this alternative story that transforms the world. You guys, this announcement of foolishness, this moronic announcement is the announcement we make. Let its weirdness soak into your marrow today. Defamiliarize yourself with the cross today. And then come to it afresh, realizing that only humility and faith can access its power. Christ crucified. When we announce this story, have you ever preached this message to someone and, and witnessed a conversion? I mean, have you seen the story change things? Uh, Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of this this young lady came up to me here at church, and uh, she, she had really, really great questions, like about the nature of salvation. And she's coming, she's like, I think I'm Mormon. I was raised that way, and I'm still a Mormon. I just don't get this born-again, Orthodox, Christian, evangelical gospel thing. And she had some great questions about how grace works. And and I asked her her permission to share it at this gathering. Um, And we had a great talk for like 20 minutes. And 20 or 30 minutes in, she's like, oh, okay. Okay, yeah, I, I definitely sense... The Spirit of God is calling me into a greater something. And, and I'm like, okay, so where are you at with the whole Mormon thing? She's like, well, an hour ago, I think I would have been a Mormon. <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? What does that mean? Next week is Baptism Sunday. Um, step into the waters. It's a, it's, a, it's a covenant you make with your community. 
And when you step into the waters of baptism, you're identifying with the Jesus who the gospels preach and the Jesus that the church confesses, that God came to us as a crucified peasant king and raised him from the dead to validate his claims. Where are you at with that? She's like, I need to pray about that. I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to. And she has family, and she has all kinds of interesting dynamics that will involve breaking. And I'm like, wow, this is like an, a historic, ancient type of conversion. Someone that knows what is at stake. Someone that sees the oxymoron of the cross and sees the impact on relationships that following Jesus opposed to the wisdom of the world actually means. And then... Um, the next Sunday, uh, she, she comes up to me after, I, I didn't see, she comes up to me after the baptism all like soaking wet, like she got baptized. And, um, and, and just this last week of her life with a fresh awareness of the, the radically uh, transformative, shocking gospel, living in it after a week, having concretely converted there's nothing like this. You guys, when this announcement is made, it leaves change in its wake. It leaves transformation in its wake. Human lives are transformed, and addictions lose their power, and new communities are formed between people that have nothing else in common. Why would they love one another like that? Even in the midst of, especially in the midst of suffering, and persecution. Last September, the Christian Post reported the fastest growing church in the world is the church in Iran right now. Like exploding. <laughs> like we don't see explosiveness like this in America. We see some, uh, but under tremendous persecution and led mostly by women, the gospel of Jesus is exploding. And in a country where conversion from Islam to Christianity is illegal and punishable, and in a country where women are largely oppressed, the gospel is spreading faster than anywhere else and bringing honor and dignity and equality to women in the church. Profound. This is the gospel we proclaim. Christ crucified. And the strangeness of it is the source of power for us. It absolutely confronts all the other narratives. It offends the narratives. Think of how many people today are offended by this gospel. Of course, part of that is because the people preaching it are sometimes jerks <laughs> and offensive. Um, that's a whole other problem, for sure. We are not called to be offensive, but the gospel message itself is offensive to a secular, pluralistic society. This idea that we're all sinners and inherently carrying a brokenness in us that we cannot fix and we deserve God's judgment and we have, we have to look to someone other than ourselves for the solution, that idea is offensive to arrogant humanists like us. For example, just to kind of demonstrate this, a very common question I hear as a pastor, very common, how can a loving God let people go to hell? Excellent question. Deserves nuance and just biblical care to actually address that question in a responsible way. We tried to do that last summer. I think Josh Butler did a great job when we brought him in. Check the podcast. We can't get into it today. The point is this. Ironically, in all my years of ministry, I've never heard the other side of that coin. I've never heard uh, anyone ask, how can a just God let me into heaven? It's the same question. Same coin, just 
It's the tail side of the head. Like, it's the same coin. Both of them are connected. You can't ask one without the other. God is love, and God is just. I mean, justice, right? Super hip. Everybody likes justice. Let's do it. I mean, we, we, want everything, we want all the justice to be done and all the injustice to be taken out of the world. And who else is wise enough and powerful enough to deal with all the injustice? Christians confess that's Jesus. That's only Jesus. And then we actually view ourselves above the justice of Jesus when we ask, how can a loving God let people into hell without also asking, how can a just God let me into heaven? And this exposes the depth of our humanistic pride. The gospel is offensive. Now, we should not be offensive. Don't misunderstand me. But the story of the cross offends because it overturns the competing narratives. For example, if we live in a world, let's think about this. If we live in a world where God forgave his murderers as they killed him, what does that say about violence? If we live in a world where the infinitely rich God made himself poor, what does that say about money? Let's think on that. If we live in a world where God was celibate, what does that say about sex? If we live in a world where God was tortured, what does that say about love? If we live in a world where God rose from the dead, what does that say about the impossible? This is why Paul says the story of Jesus, it's nonsense from the viewpoint of every competing story. Think about authority from the world's perspective. Human wisdom says, what's authority for? Power, influence. For a crucified God, authority is all about serving people and lifting up the worthless person according to society because he said the greatest among you will be your slave. Or think about money. Human wisdom says, of course it's more blessed to receive than to give. I mean, everything about America is set up that way, you guys. For a crucified God, though, he says it's more blessed to give than to receive, but if I'm dead honest, I don't believe in Jesus on that one. I don't, Evan doesn't actually believe in a world where I would be more blessed to be receiving less and giving away more than I am. And the gospel says, I am wrong. The gospel says, I'm buying into the wrong story. The gospel of materialism. To quote Paul, the wisdom of the world. How many of you think if you had another hundred grand, you'd be happier and more content? I do. <laughs> and that's the wrong story. Remember, Paul's talking to followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus who are enamored with the world's story. And Paul's like, hey, the cross, the cross and the world are telling opposing narratives. Which one are you going to live in? This is the real question for followers of Jesus. The story you live in is a story you live out, which is why it is eternally worth it to humble ourselves before this cross. And by faith and by humility say, Lord, show me more of your heart through this because I am so thick-headed. 
and let the power of the cross transform us. So in the story of Jesus' cross, despair becomes hope, and unbelief is transformed to faith. So today, the call comes from Jesus himself. Can you put that up? Yeah, this is it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. I love how uh, one of my mentors, uh, Gary Bashirs, puts it. He's like, Jesus died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. And that just blows a fuse in the wealthiest nation on earth. We don't know what to make of that when blessing is equated with stuff and a lack of pain. Blessing is a lack of pain. Blessing is a lack of danger. Was Jesus blessed? The most hurt person that's ever walked the earth. And he says, whoever wants to follow me let them take up their cross daily. So here's the call just to end, and we're going to come to the table and pray that this story gets into our guts through the, through the bread and cup, um, which is what it's been doing for 2,000 years. It's been getting into our, our guts. Jesus knows how to tell a story. Just serve a meal. It's great. Um, so if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to say you just sat through... Possibly the most offensive message humans have ever heard. <laughs> the message of the cross. You're brave. Well done. We love you. You're welcome here. Um, you're also welcome to begin processing what it looks like to step into the kingdom of a crucified God. And to be a community that selflessly gives love to one another. And love as defined by Jesus. Lifting up the worthless person at whatever expense to me. Not love is love. But love is lifting up the worthless person according to society at whatever expense to me. That's love according to Jesus. You are invited into God's forever family that is to embody that cross-shaped love. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what does this mean? What does it look like? It means repent. Repent just means rethink. Just rethink your life in light of the cross. If the cross is the ultimate revelation of God, what does that mean about the world and about you in it? The forgiveness that he has for you is also an invitation to be part of his forgiven family. The invitation is to join this family and join us in taking up our cross daily. And we need each other for this. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I imagine like the vast majority in a church in the 21st century are probably Christians. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you guys, it's like the same call. Repent, <laughs> rethink your whole life and any area that's out of alignment with the way of Jesus, bring it into alignment. How? Well, first we're gonna remember him by coming to the table. Can you put up the, the response to the cross slide, the last slide? I'm gonna go from bottom to top. First, remember. All around the room, there's bread and cups we're about to eat and drink. Step into the story through the meal Jesus gave us. There's power here. And then realign. How does that work? Well, I, I like to call it community inventory. Like, if you're part of a community, confess. Like, hey, I just, man, 
I just sense that this area of my life needs to be brought into greater alignment with the way of Jesus. And I need counsel and I need prayer. Let's just talk this out. This is why community is non-negotiable for following Jesus. And if you're really brave in the realign piece, if you're really brave, ask for feedback. (laughs) What do you see in me, community, that is out of alignment with the way of Jesus? That takes guts. But that's where the goods are. And, And maybe it takes a community that's been together as long as Rachel's, two and a half years, to get to the spot where you can actually have authentic 360 assessments on your cross-shaped living. <laughs> but that's the goal. And then, and then finally, read. You guys, we have four accounts of our rabbi's life, each of which culminates into this crucifixion scene and this resurrection. I think Christians should always be working through a gospel. It's the epicenter. It's the, it's the controlling narrative within the whole story. I'm a huge fan of Bible reading plans that actually feature a little chunk of a gospel every day. Huge fan. Which is why the, the, the Bible project plan that we put on the weekly newsletter is a little bit difficult for me sometimes. I'm like, I need a gospel today again. I'm going to be in Isaiah for the next month. <laughs> Which is great too. Because Isaiah points to the same suffering servant. But I would challenge you to bring in some gospel as often as you can. You guys, I'm literally telling you something very simple. It is returning into the story as often as we can through daily reading. It's not enough to sit here on a Sunday for 90 minutes and get a shot in the arm and then see you next week. So we're going to come to the table now. And then we're going to eat and drink. And then we're going to have a time of prayer. And invite anyone who just senses deep, in, I, I, yeah, deep insufficiency, come forward, receive prayer after the bread and cup. But right now we're going to come to the table. So let's all stand together.